Um, I want to read a passage from uh, 1 Kings, actually, verse 8, uh, or chapter 8, verse 22. Um, in Kings, it's actually verse 23, my apology. In Kings, the context is uh, Solomon is about to uh, dedicate the temple, and as he contemplates all that that means and that David had longed to build this temple uh, unto the Lord, and Solomon was able to do that. God said to David, uh, I, I appreciate your passion for me. I appreciate your desire. I honor that. But you have been a man of war. And I, I'm going to let your son build the temple. And now is the fulfillment of that promise. And Solomon is about to dedicate the temple. And he says, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way, you have kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised, with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. And if you read this in some other uh, versions or translations, uh, one of them says, For you are a covenant-keeping God. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. We've talked a little bit about this as we've studied Revelation, but I want to expand that into some depth this morning as we consider what that means. And in order to do that, we have to talk about for a moment what a covenant is. And to be very honest, in, in our current culture, there are virtually no covenants. In fact, covenants on human terms are nearly impossible. We have contracts. We have agreements. Uh, we have um, treaties. But we are accustomed in our culture to breaking them whenever they don't suit us any longer. And there's always some kind of provision for how the covenant can be dissolved. When uh, people come to me and want to talk to me about uh, getting married and they want me to participate in their ceremony, I always say to them, this is your service. It's your ceremony. I want to honor your desires. And I'm willing for you to write your vows, if you like. Uh, or I can give you a couple of templates. But there is one thing that must be included in the vow that I will not compromise on or allow to be eliminated. And that is, until death do us part. Uh, I will not compromise on that statement. Because more than any other contract or treaty that we might make, as I say in the ceremony itself, and if you've been to some of the weddings that I've done, you, you know there's a certain amount of sameness 
uh, even though I try to particularize it to the couple getting married and personalize it, but there's a certain amount of sameness by design as I explain that it was God who said it is not good for the man to be alone, and he made for him a, a helpmeet, and her name was Eve, and God said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cling or cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then I remind the audience that what God has joined together, no one can dissolve. And that because God is the one who created the institution of marriage, that it is His uh, idea marriage and sex and all that goes with it, and children is God's idea. It's His plan. And so as a consequence of that, it is His prerogative to determine the conditions under which the covenant are entered and under which the covenant can be broken. Jesus was hearkening back to this in His Sermon on the Mount, And at some point, he was asked the question, but Moses gave us the opportunity to divorce. And he reminded the audience that Moses did that because of the hardness of their heart. Not because it was the heart of God or the desire of God. A covenant is a binding agreement that lasts throughout one's life. In fact, in the Scripture, the only way a covenant can be broken is by a death. And so we see, for example, in the covenant that God established with Moses regarding the law, the only way that covenant could be broken to be under the the operation And the curse of the law was for Jesus Christ Himself to undertake to fulfill its terms and then to die. So that He could separate us from that covenant and give us a new covenant. A covenant that we could enter into with our Lord Jesus where He would take the responsibility for keeping the law through us even as He gave His life to cleanse us and shed His blood to invalidate the Mosaic Covenant in order to give us the grace covenant uh, that comes through the cross. A covenant is a very sacred thing. It's not like a contract that has the terms of dissolution. It's not like a treaty that uh, all that has to happen is somebody shoots the first missile and the treaty is null and void. It's not like any of those things. It's a covenant that God says only death can break that covenant. And when God undertakes to keep a covenant, there is no death. And so when He undertakes to keep a covenant... God who cannot lie will keep that covenant from the beginning of the covenant all the way to the end. Now, I want to say that in preface to our study in Revelation, 
because there is a um, there's a fascinating uh, part about Revelation in chapter 11 and following that are is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. And I want to uh, read that to you if I can find it, uh, which I can't, of course. Um, you know, could I have the slides, Reggie? That's why I can't find it. It's not on my notes. It's on these notes. God's land covenant with Israel, for our God is a covenant-keeping God. Let's look at the passage from Genesis. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Kenite, the Kenizzite, the Cadmonite, the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. Now let's just pause there for a moment. Let me ask you something. Can you call up the Middle Eastern geography in your mind? Do you know where the Euphrates is? Do you know what? What's the big town that's been in the news in the last decade that the Euphrates runs close to? Baghdad. All right. And the ancient Baghdad is what ancient city? Babylon. All right. That's important. And what is the river of Egypt? Yeah, if you say the river of Egypt, it has to be the Nile. So let's look at the next slide. I want you to see the current boundary of the nation of Israel. Currently, Israel is in the sort of middle tan there. The West Bank is kind of greenish to the west of Jordan. The Gaza Strip down there by Egypt, Syria, and Lebanon are on the north. Egypt is on the south. Saudi Arabia is back over this way uh, to the uh, south and to the east. Notice the boundary of Israel today. Even in Solomon's day, at its largest, it was not a lot bigger than it is now. Now let's look at that map of the Middle East. Next slide. There we go. Now, let's reorient toward Israel. This is the Old Testament world. Look way over there on the Mediterranean Sea, way to the left in the middle. There's Sidon and Tyre. I don't know if you can see that. And then there's Canaan. And uh, there's the Dead Sea uh, near Jerusalem there. And currently today, Israel occupies that portion uh, bounding on the Mediterranean Sea to the west and the um, Jordan River running north and south um, down through what is called Canaan and Jerusalem. And let's look at the overlay. This is what God promised them. Do you see the difference? Isn't that huge? There's the Euphrates on this northeastern uh, border running through Mesopotamia. And there's the Nile on the west. And however far south you want to draw the boundary, uh, at least to get in the Nile and the Euphrates, you've got to encompass a lot. The little yellow 
uh, odd-shaped portion is present-day Israel. And God promised Abram all of the area in the dark reddish tan. Israel has never occupied all of that land. Now, there were well over a hundred prophecies, some say as many as three hundred, that were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. And they were literally fulfilled. In other words, God undertook to literally fulfill His promises to the nation in the coming of their Messiah, even though they didn't get it and they missed it. But do you suppose that any less will God keep His covenant with Abram and not fulfill the promise that He made to Abram's descendants that they would have all of this land? someday. You know, there are those in the world today that want to deny Israel even exists. One day Israel's going to own them. They're going to occupy all of that, all of uh, Iran and Iraq and uh, all uh, northern part of Arabia and all of Egypt and Lebanon and Jordan And all of those areas, Israel will occupy, and that will be their land. And so you say, when will this happen, and when will it come to pass? And um, Tina read for us, or Cody read for us, a passage of Scripture this morning from Zechariah 14. I'd like you to look there. You're running out of fingers, aren't you? You got one in Revelation 11, and now you got some in Genesis. And but Zechariah 14, beginning in verse one, a day of the Lord is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered and divided within your very walls. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped, half the city will go in exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. There is coming a time, this was not during Titus' reign of Rome in in A.D. 62 or 3 uh, or 72, somewhere along in there, because John is writing 20 years later. And clearly, he's not referring to the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Roman government. He's referring to a future time when all the nations of the world are gathered against Israel. God will uh, motivate them to come against her. And it says, on that day then, verse 3, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights on the day of battle. On that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. 
You will flee by my mountain valley, for it will extend to Azel. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. This is an interesting phrase from Zechariah. I don't want you to miss it. Because at some point in Revelation, the church, the holy ones, the saints are going to be raptured. And they're going to return with the Lord Jesus Christ on the day that He comes back and plants His feet on the Mount of Olives and establishes His righteous reign from the heart of Jerusalem. And so it says, That day, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with Him. In other words, all of the raptured and resurrected and a transformed church will return with Jesus Christ. On that day there will be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there will be light. Um, on that day, living water will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of it to the east of the Dead Sea and half of it west of the Mediterranean. In summer and in winter, the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, there will be one Lord and His name the only name. In other words, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back for Israel. And He's going to establish His kingdom from Jerusalem. And He will establish a righteous reign that Revelation tells us will last for a thousand years. And in that day, uh, Jesus Christ will uh, bring back the church. And also, it says there will be living water that will flow out from Jerusalem. Now, one of the interesting things about that is found in Hebrews chapter 8. You don't have to use a finger for this. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors, say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know Me, from the least to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Now, one of the passages in Zechariah, and I believe that it's in 12. I'm going to lose my place here doing this, I'm sure. So you have to bear with me. See if I can find it real quickly for you. Uh, look in uh, Zechariah chapter 12 on verse and verse 3. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, that is Israel, 
I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the generations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day I will strike every horse with panic and rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. And then in verse 10 of the same chapter, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. And they will look on me, the one they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad-Rimnon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, of Nathan and their wives, of Levi and their wives, and so on and so forth. And then verse uh, chapter 13, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse from them from sin and impurity. And the Scripture goes on to say that they will look on Him whom they have pierced. I'll let you read along with that. They will look on Him whom they have pierced, and they will believe. What is this telling us? That not only is God going to fulfill His promise to Israel regarding the land and their natural kingdom, but He's also going to fulfill the promise of their spiritual renewal and the living water that will flow out. And there will come that moment when they see their Lord Jesus, the Messiah, returning in the clouds of the sky in the air, and they will look on Him, the one they pierced, and in a moment, God will give them a spirit of grace and supplication, and their eyes will be opened, and they will recognize, we missed Him, this is the one, and they will mourn initially, but they will believe. And in their belief, there will be a spiritual transformation as all of the remnant of Israel alive in that moment is saved. And this will come about in a time when when the armies of the nations of the world have gathered against them to destroy them, and it looks like there's no hope. And their Messiah will appear with all of His holy ones. And they will see Him and be delivered. And He will fight for them against the nations of the world that have rejected Him. And He will establish His name and His kingdom in Jerusalem. Friends, make no mistake about it. Our God is a covenant-keeping God who keeps His covenant through all the ages. He has not forgotten His promise to Abram. 
nor has he forgotten the spiritual renewal that he has promised to the remnant of Israel. There will come that day when God causes them to be born again, transforms them, uh, and he establishes his kingdom and reign of righteousness. I say all of that to take us to Revelation chapter 11. And we'll just uh, go there for a bit. In Revelation chapter 11, I'm going to take all your fingers out now. We have arrived. The seventh trumpet, which is verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever. Now, you recall from last week, earlier in the chapter as it began, that John was given a measuring rod and was told to go measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court, do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. And John talks about a period of three and a half years when this, um, this uh, horrible time of woe will be occurring, but the measuring of the temple was a way of saying, I'm marking off the temple of worshipers for a reason. In other words, God was identifying His worshipers, His Jewish worshipers. And He was promising to save the remnant. This is Israel that is going to be identified and marked off and God will redeem them in the last days. And then in the seventh trumpet, when it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah, the 24 elders fall down. Uh, verse 18, the nations were angry. Your wrath has come, the time for judging the dead, the rewarding of your servants, the prophets. God's temple in heaven, verse 19, was open, and within His temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. Because all who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ will be judged by the law. And at the time of judgment, the Ark of the Covenant will be exposed and the tablets of the law will be brought out. And the question for those who have not trusted Jesus is, how did you measure up against the Ark of the Covenant and the law and the covenant with Moses? How did you do? And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a hailstorm as judgment comes. Remember, remember that we stand back and look at Revelation as a mural. And John is now suddenly taking us before the bowls, because they're, he's going to talk about those after a few chapters. But he's standing back and kind of giving us a sweeping overview of this time. And in the seventh woe, as the seventh trumpet sounds, he takes us to the very end of the story and the last judgment. 
Now he's going to back up and he's going to tell us what he sees in the middle. And you have to keep that in mind as you read Revelation because it is not chronological. It's panoramic. And it's like looking at the mural. You know, I've illustrated this before, but if I get up here real close, the only thing I can see here is my mighty rock, holy and God of grace and rest. I can't see anything down there. But if I back off away from it, now I can take in the whole mural on the wall and I can see everything, and I might want to just talk about all of it for a moment, but then I want to go back and focus on one spot. And that's how John is shown the revelation. So he's about to tell us that as the temple is marked off representing Israel, now a great sign appears in heaven, chapter 12, A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And another sign appears in heaven. An enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on the heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Who is that? That's Satan. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so it might devour her child the moment she was, he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Who is that? That's Jesus, obviously. And the child was snatched up to God in His throne. When did that occur? In the resurrection. So... So, in other words, this is talking to us about the beginning of the church. About Jesus who came and was incarnate. The, 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 the promised one of Israel, the Messiah. And how the uh, enemy, our Satan, tried with all of his might to destroy this man-child before he could have any effect or power. And then it says in verse um, 13, when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for time, times, and a half time out of the serpent's reach. You may disagree with me, but I am fairly convinced that this is speaking about the church. There's a twofold promise in Revelation 11, 12, 13, and 14, and that twofold promise is God will one day redeem Israel in fulfillment of His covenant. God will also care for the church. He will take care of her. He will nurture her. He will over oversee her throughout the difficult times until she is also redeemed. And that redemption occurs in the rapture and in the resurrection. And so God is promising here that He will keep His Word. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Paul said, I know and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him against that day. 
when Paul uses that phraseology, that day, he's referring to the return of Jesus Christ. He says, I know and am persuaded that He is able to keep what I've committed to Him, namely my life, my soul, my eternity, against that day. That God is a covenant-keeping God. And the Scripture says, if we remain faithless, He is faithful, for He cannot deny His own. Our God has undertaken to hold us fast and to keep us safe until that moment that He brings us in glorious rapture to His heavenly kingdom. There are those, we sing the song, the church is one foundation, and there's a phrase in there that says, for those whose rest is one. Hebrews talks about a great cloud of witnesses uh, watching uh, us and cheering us on from the grandstands of heaven. There are those who have gone before us who have already secured their safe harbor. And when that day comes, the dead in Christ shall rise first. God will call them forth and reunite them with their bodies. And then He says, we which are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We are going to experience simultaneous rapture if we're alive when Jesus comes, with those who have already gone before, God will change us. We will not all sleep, that is, we won't all die, but we will be changed, metamorphosed. That's the Greek word, and you know what that means. It's what butterflies, uh, you know, moths, caterpillars, whatever, turn into butterflies. That's a metamorphosis. We will be metamorphosed into our resurrected bodies without death. Won't that be fun if we're alive at that moment? Won't that be something special? I realize it's a holy, hallowed, sacred moment. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, did you ever have dreams of flying? Well, yes, I did. Um, I don't anymore. I have dreams of walking these days. But Anyway... um, but uh, I used to dream as a child of flying, you know, without the airplane. And um, it would be kind of cool to fly. But uh, if we're alive when Jesus comes, we're going to be caught up together with the dead in Christ to meet the Lord in the air. Our God is a covenant-keeping God. John is writing to encourage the churches. He wants them to know they can trust the Lord. He is trustworthy. Some will suffer. There will be persecution. There's persecution now. That's not something the church can hope to escape uh, just because we're the church. That's an American Western concept that life is going to be a bed of roses if we become Christians, there's nothing in the Scripture that says that. Quite the opposite. Jesus says, you will suffer tribulation, persecution because of My name. No matter how tough it gets. And these seven churches of Asia were going through tough times. Some of them had compromised. Some of them had failed. 
Some of them were remaining faithful, but it was a tough time. And John wants them to know, no matter how tough it gets, no matter how bad it gets, our God is a covenant-keeping God. He is going to see us through. He is going to stay with us till the end. He is going to bring us safely to His heavenly kingdom. We can count on it. And so, the promise is in these chapters that both Israel and the church will realize all the promises of God and the day will come when we stand in His presence safe and secure and we are with Him as He ushers in the thousand-year reign of righteousness and glory. Praise the Lord. Friends, be encouraged. Whether you're going through a personal tribulation, a, a private, emotional, physical disaster, whether you're going through suffering because of your faith, whether you're going to participate in suffering. I heard someone recently had written a, a commentary, I'm trying to think who it was, but um, basically what they were looking at was the rise of Islam in the world today and the church in America and the way things were going politically and, and how the United States was beginning to mimic Hitler's Germany in the early days in some of the ways that we are, uh, some of the path that we're following politically. And basically what he had to say was, I believe it was a recent pastor of Moody, but what he had to say was, get ready, get ready. We've had it easy. It's going to get tough. It doesn't matter what kind of suffering you're in the midst of. Our Lord's promise is faithful and true. He will see us through. He is a covenant-keeping God. Praise His name. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a covenant-keeping Savior. Father, that you are a covenant-keeping God, that we can trust You, that we can rest in You, that we can put our confidence in You and know that You will see us safely through to the end. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.